1968, George Romero brought us Night of the Living Dead. It became the classic horror film of its time. Now, George Romero brings us the most intensely shocking motion picture experience for all times. Dawn of the Dead. Night of the Living Dead has ended. Dawn of the Dead is here. up and kills. The people it kills get up and kill. They must be destroyed on sight. When there is no more room in hell, the dead will walk the earth. Dawn of the dead. Welcome to the Cinematic Void Podcast. Cinematic Void is a cult film series that hosts screenings in the Los Angeles area as well as virtually. I'm your host, Jim Branscombe, and joining me as always is... Hey, what's up? It's Nick Vance. Paranoid Futures on Letterboxd or wherever. You can find Cinematic Void on the World Wide Web at cinematicvoid.com as well as Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, and all the major podcast platforms. If you want to support The Void, you can consider joining our Patreon. Not only do you get cool perks but you make this podcast as well as a cinemadness movie possible. Uh, go ahead and hit subscribe, like, thumbs up, heart it, what, wherever you're watching, listen to this. You know, just do a little thing, push it around a little bit, maybe tell your friend. It's all good. Tell your friend. Like, you know, it's it's cool that we have people that, you know, come up to us and tell us like, hey, I really like the podcast, but like, I hate to be this guy because I hate when other podcasts do, but now I know why. It's like, come on, man, just give us a rating. And the only reason I'm asking is because it just puts it on other people's radar. So if you enjoy the podcast, give us a rating, thumbs up, like, just what, just what, just what, like, Nick just already said. I don't need to repeat it, but just helps spread the word, the gospel of the void, as it were. Fuck with the, uh, the algorithm a little bit. Yeah, fuck with the algorithm, because, like, you can't get this shit on Facebook. Speaking of the podcast, there's now an option that the feed is on Facebook. Whatever that means. Yeah, whatever that means. Like Facebook has their own like uh, podcast. Like, yeah. Jesus Christ. Oh, fuck them. So, <laughs> so anyway, we just passed Halloween. How's your Halloween, Jim? Did you get it? Did you get into anything? Yeah, I sat at home and I um, packed up past chili dog shirts on Halloween. Right on. Because the hello issue that that part of my um shirt package arrived late and I knew. Coming on November first, like I was gonna be busy, and it's just like I was at home for Halloween. Like, it this is something that's been happening the last several years, unless like I'm out of town. It's just like sometimes just don't feel like it's. It didn't feel like Halloween this year, if that makes sense. I don't know how you felt about it. I mean, I I definitely didn't do anything, but I, I that's kind of my uh that's kind of my move anyway. Like I don't know, just 
I I don't know, man. I'm I'm old. I'm not getting dressed up for Halloween. It's not I'm not like, oh that's kid shit, but like I don't know. I just I watched I actually sat home and watched Hereditary. That's what I did on Halloween Halloween. I don't know. You you least watched a, like a horror movie. I didn't do shit like that. Like literally just like it was just my wife and cats and I at home and just packing up shirts. Packing up shirts. I mean, I did all the packing. She did other stuff because she's like, yeah, I ain't helping you with that shit, dog. But yeah. Not that she doesn't help, but like I don't know. I I felt bad because like these were so late. Same with the Halloween shirts and like I just wanted to crank them out and but, you know, Halloween was what it was, but I decided to extend Halloween because I ended up doing a screening of Halloween 3 on November 5th. Now, full disclosure, this screening was originally supposed to be on Halloween, but like when they went to go book the print, all the 35mm for Halloween 3 were booked. And I kind of felt like I was going to get yelled at by like the 35mm mafia if I showed a DCP, so I was like, let's just wait a week. I, I thought it'd be funny to just show it in November anyway, because... Yeah, and people love it these days, so why not? Yeah. They're going to come out for it. I mean, I called it the Halloween hangover screening, and we just... This is just Pat. Like, this is the Monday after that screening, and it was a lot of fun. Like, uh, I wasn't there with the host, unfortunately. Um, we brought out Tom Atkins' brother, Dom Atkins, who, if you were at Beyond Fest in 2019 when we did the Tomathon... Dom was there to help introduce the movies before Tom got there. So Dom made a appearance for a Halloween three screening. Like I've never met Dom. So I, you know, be cool to meet him, but he was, he was an interesting character. Yeah. I heard, I heard someone heckled him about a subway or some shit. He's a little drunk. I mean, isn't he always? Yeah. I mean, but it, from what I heard from you who was there and, what everyone seems seemed to be a rowdy good time. I saw some video of Dom's intro, so yeah, it was good fun. And then the following day, just not really Halloween spirit, but still like horror related, teamed up with Severn Films to do the second Super Shock pop up film festival. We originally did this over at the Egyptian and the Spielberg back in I guess 2019, and we were supposed to do it 2020, but the date was going to work out, so Severn decided to rent out the Montabon, and we were supposed to do it there pandemic hit so ended up being at the arena center lounge outdoors and i think we're all a little skeptical about outdoor theaters and that kind of stuff but the event was really cool we debuted like three of severin's upcoming black friday titles bloody pit of horror aka the crimson executioner with mickey Haggerty. you know big strong man used to be married to jane mansfield oh right on that was the first movie then we showed an indonesian movie the forbidden door which was really cool, really violent, really surreal. I think you would really like The Forbidden Door. Okay. I think that's up your alley. And then the last movie, which was something we've been... We talked about, but we couldn't really talk about when we had Bruce Holacek on for the Bigfoot episode, which was, of course, Night of the Demon, which we knew that whole fucking time that Severn basically got access to the only 35mm print of it and were able to do a scan extensive color correction and it's the best this fucking movie's ever looked hell yeah like now you can see bigfoot dick rip in stunning 2k resolution hd it's fucking a thing of beauty i fucking filmed it at the screening because it was just it was just amazing and the coolest part about that screening is director jim wasson of night of the demon showed up now little backstory with them is he's never actually seen this full version of the movie because the version he made was a PG Bigfoot movie that was more in the vein of um, 
you know, Legend of the Boggy Creek and a lot of the other Bigfoot movies that came out in their early to mid-70s. But by the time this movie's coming out, they're like, we got to compete. We got to make it gory. So they went and reshot a bunch of shit without him, which is all the gore scenes. So he had never seen it. But he had a blast of the screening. He was super nice, too. Like, Severn also, they did some cool things for Night of the Demon. They have a Night of the Demon mask that they're going to be selling on Black Friday. They have a fucking Bigfoot statue, and the Bigfoot's holding a little dick in its hand. His phone <laughs> ripped it off. And they also did a fucking novelization of Night of the Demon. Oh, wow. So they got a really cool package with it, but I'm beyond stoked. Like, Night of the Demon's one of my personal favorite of the video nasties. It's, you know, my favorite Bigfoot movie. It's just out of control. And it, obviously, it was one of the movies they showed early on during the pandemic for cinematic movies. So I was kind of happy that it's come full circle from like that old one inch tape master that's been like the basis for every release since. Now it's getting a true, really nice restoration. So shout out to David and Severn. Like that event was a lot of fun. But, you know, we're talking about Halloween and that kind of stuff. It's kind of time to talk about another holiday. It's a holiday that kind of gets lost because Christmas for a lot of people starts on November 1st now. Are you one of those big start Christmas on November 1st guys? Uh, nah, I gotta get past Thanksgiving. Yeah. You know? I agree with that. I like Thanksgiving. I like eating food. I like, you know, because what my wife and I do on Thanksgiving is we just sit around, make dinner, watch um, Turkey Day, Mystery Science Theater Marathon, and like, that's kind of our tradition. It's like, I have nothing against Christmas. I just don't like the fact that like... Actually, I'll say this too. Like September, when everyone starts, like there's that segment of people that start putting on the Halloween decorations. Like it's spooky season. It's like I ain't gonna lie, I kind of hate that shit because I think it takes away from October and Halloween. Just like starting Christmas on fucking November first takes away from Christmas a little bit. I remember last time I was in Salem in 2018. Day after Halloween, we're walking through the Witch City Mall playing fucking Christmas music. And this is goddamn Salem. Take out, you know, the bad stuff associated with Thanksgiving. It's about just take the meaning, not the actual historic meaning. You know what I mean? It's about, you know, comfort and, you know, enjoying time with your family. You know, it's better than Christmas than trying to enjoy your family because I feel like there's more fights at Christmas than Thanksgiving. I mean, it's just everyone gets fucking stuffed and just falls asleep. There's no gifts or anything like that to hold you back. But... The thing about Thanksgiving, which does lead into Christmas, is the day after, which is Black Friday, which is the big mall day. We, you know, I remember like family members would get up at like two in the fucking morning and go to the mall to get those deals or whatever. Mm-hmm. So this is why we're coming into the today's episode. Well, part of the reason: one, you know, Black Friday is coming up, and two, it's related to a screening I'm going to be doing later this month in November. So for Black Friday. I'm, along with Beyondfest, we're going to be screening George A. Romero's classic Dawn of the Dead. I've actually done this screening before, funny enough, in 2018. It feels like this is a 2018 podcast from the amount of times I've said it now. But 2018, I made a pitch to Cinematech programming. I was like, I want to do a Black Friday screening of Dawn of the Dead because of the mall and all that stuff. And made it happen. And Christian's like, hey, I want part of this too. He brought up Greg Nicotero. Who didn't work on Dawn, but he was, you know, friends with Romero and worked on like Day of the Dead and a lot of other Romero movies. And it was a really cool discussion. Talked about insight about the original script and that kind of stuff. And then after we did it, I guess the next year I did another Black Friday double feature of Chopping Mall and Phantom of the Mall, Eric's Revenge. 
But Christian and I had talked about, like, we should try to do Dawn of Dead again on Black Friday and kind of make it a tradition because a lot of rep houses now, like, you know, they do Silent Night, Deadly Night, and Black Christmas for Christmas and that kind of stuff. But I kind of just want to do something around Thanksgiving time because no one really does it. So it's just like, why don't we just make a tradition of um, screening Dawn of Dead on Black Friday? And we actually worked it out with Grant from the Cinematheque, Christian and I. We talked to Richard P. Rubenstein, who's the producer of Dawn of Dead and the rights holder. And more or less, we worked it out for, at least for now, a two-year deal. We're doing it this year and next year. We're showing Dawn of the Dead on Black Friday. And, you know, Dawn is one of my all-time favorite movies. I think it's the best zombie movie ever made. That's just my opinion. And I thought it'd be fun, kind of leading into the screening, was just kind of talk about Dawn, because besides these screenings, I, I have a bit of a relationship with Dawn. I don't know. I mean, do you feel like you have a bit of a relationship with Dawn? I mean, I've certainly seen it enough times. You know, something I used to just throw on in the background while I'm just doing shit. It's just playing. There's a lot of different facets with Dawn, and we're going to talk about them. It, this is going to be kind of like the Fog episode we did earlier this year, but maybe not as detailed. This is going to be more... I think, for at least for me, more personal experience with this movie. So we're going to take a little commercial break. But when we return, we're going to talk about some Dawn of the Dead on the Cinematic Void podcast. George Romero's sensational new film, Zombies, brings you face to face with the Dawn of the Dead. They are multiplying too rapidly. We've got to survive. Somebody's got to survive. Zombies. Certificate X. In the West End now and all over London from Sunday. Welcome back. We're going to be talking about George A. Romero's zombie classic, Dawn of the Dead. Obviously, we're only talking about the 78 version and not the Zack Snyder remake. Um, I'm just going to say I don't plan on bringing it up. I know it has its fans. I didn't mind it when it first came out. I don't really like the movie now, so... Yeah, if you want to hear about that, I'm sure there's another podcast that will wax philosophical about the Zack Snyder version. But for me, we're just going to talk about Dawn of the Dead. And I guess my first question for you, Nick, is do you remember the first time you saw Dawn of the Dead? You know, I, I don't. I, I hmm, yeah, I, I don't really remember a, a specific first time, but it, it kind of just like in the in the way that it just always feels like it was there. Like mm-hmm. as far as like when I when once I was aware of horror movies, it was just always been in the conversation. So I don't specifically remember the first time. Oh, I mean that's a fair point. I do have a vivid memory of it because I remember, and I think I've talked about this before. Maybe I haven't talked about it on this podcast. I've know I've talked about it elsewhere, but like Night of Living Dead was the movie that kind of changed things for me on a bigger scale and. I used to be scared shitless because Night of the Living Dead, rural cemetery, church, there was one near the house I grew up at. After just not even finishing Night of the Living Dead, I was fucking terrified, too terrified to finish Night of the Living Dead because I thought zombies were going to come and fucking siege my like parents' house and fucking eat me. When I finally finished Night, it kind of opened the door to be obsessed with horror movies. And I remember I was in... Virginia visiting um, aunt, uncle, and cousins. Like my, it was a family visit, so I went with my mom and dad and my sister. And I always wanted to see Dawn of the Dead, and we went to the video store to rent some shit. So we rented Dawn of the Dead, and that was the first time I watched it. And I was just like blown a bit away by it. Of course, my sister, who was nine years younger than me, shouldn't have been watching it and was fucking scarred for life. 
Like, she has zombie nightmares to this day. Oh, like, wow. Like, she's, like, running and shit in her sleep. She might not have them anymore, but, like, that movie straight up fucked her up. And it, if she ever listens to this, sorry, Vicky. But that was the first time I saw it. And then I remember, like, obsessively wanting to own a copy. And I think it's, like, I'm trying to think what year it is. But it was, like, when Anchor Bay and Elite Entertainment started, like, putting out the laser disc, And then, like... VHS versions of Dawn Dead. And I remember going to Walmart, of all fucking places, and they had the tube tape Anchor Bay Elite Entertainment. I can't remember which one it was because it went back and forth. I think it might have been Anchor Bay. It was a two tape set of what they call the director's cut of Dawn of the Dead. Mm-hmm. And I think it was all supposed to be one tape was supposed to have the movie, and then the other tape was supposed to have a bunch of extras. But whatever reason, this... They split the movie in half. Like, one part was on one tape, and the second half of the movie was on another tape. It's kind of fucking weird. Well, I remember I remember you and DeHaven both having copies of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember that also specifically because he has, like, a giant fucking tattoo on his, I think it's maybe his leg, no, his arm. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, oh, but about it being split onto the two tapes there, um, something I... I learned or I remembered in my recent rewatch of this is it's way fucking longer than I remember, but also I guess we'll get into that later. <laughs> yeah. We'll, we'll be getting it very soon. As... But the, you know, uh, no matter which length we'll say you, you would like me to watch, uh, they're all pretty fucking long is what I'm saying. It's a, it's a long movie. It's not a, I remember this being a 90 minute movie and in its shortest incarnation, it is nowhere near a fucking 90-minute movie. But, you know, back to that tape, like, once I had Dawn of the Dead on tape, it was something I obsessively watched. Like, I, you know, at one point through high school and maybe early college, like, I'm pretty certain I was watching it at least once a month, sometimes once a week, you know, sometimes twice a month. Like, I was watching it a lot. Like, I probably watched it, like, any given year for, like, since, like, maybe... I guess I'd say 95 or 96. I can't remember when that tape came out, but like through that to through like early 2000s, I was literally watching that movie at least once a month. Yeah. Every month. And I definitely had a, a DVD that I feel like came out in maybe the early 2000s or late 90s that kind of had like the, it set it in gold on the spine. Yeah. There, there was a couple different versions that hit DVD and then Anchor Bay eventually put out a version that had all three of the main versions of Dawn of the Dead. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to jump on that in a second, but, like, I want to talk kind of more of my obsession with Dawn of the Dead. Like, you know, lived in just outside of Baltimore. Pittsburgh is five, six hours away, which is, you know, Monroeville is, like, just... I can't remember if it's on the outskirts, if it's above, below. You know, I don't have a fucking map on me. But basically, if you drive to Pittsburgh, you're going to hit Monroeville. And my first adult road trip was to Monroeville Mall, and I think... I think it was the year 2000. And I went with a mutual friend of ours, Jim DeHaven, who we mentioned a lot when we had Holacek on the podcast, the Bigfoot episode. And we drove up there. Before we drove up there, because we were like, hey, we had this friend named Jesse Morgan. You remember Jesse Morgan? Oh, yeah. Jesse Morgan, cool dude, even though he likes Scott. But, you know, let's <laughs> not hold that against anyone. It was, it was the 90s and early 2000s. But Jesse had offered to go... Dude. We've all got some some skeletons in our closet. Skeletons. <laughs> but outside of that, Jesse went and bought Jim and I beer and like some rum and some things to go drink on this road trip once we got to Monroeville. And I guess he was fucking with us because he got us a fucking like 12-pack of fucking Corona Light. 
And then Jim and I thought it'd be funny to do this thing where we mix rum and Dr. Pepper. Like, that would be a real mixed drink. And I'm going to tell you right now, that was a fucking horrible fucking idea. That Dr. Pepper is not a good mixer in any kind of drink. Is that plum flavor? Is that what that's supposed to be? I don't know what Dr. Pepper is supposed to be. Is it plum? I think that's the one. Yeah, it's plum. I mean, I... I don't. I haven't drank Dr. Pepper in years, but God damn it! If I had known that that it was supposed to be plum favorite, Jesus fucking Christ! But regardless of what the flavor is, it does not go with rum. So we had, and here's the other thing: Corona is not a twist top, and we didn't have a bottle opener. So we go to this stay of this like days in, just on the literally on the outskirts of the Monroeville Mall. Mall, and basically during the day we went to the mall, we took pictures, we tried to like. This is pre, I mean, the internet might have existed, but like, actually the internet did exist, but, you know, we're taking like disposable cameras and taking photos of shit, you know, at the mall. And like, when we went in the, that early 2000s, like, is it a, you got Polaroid? No, it wasn't Polaroid. It's like, you know, those disposable cameras you used to get at like fucking Kmart or anywhere and you, oh, had, you had to oh, take yeah, them, okay. to get them developed, for that sure, kind of for stuff. Sure. You got a couple of those and just mm-hmm. shot a ton of photos of stuff. And when we went in the early 2000s, obviously things had changed from... The movie, like, there was no ice skating rank. The clock was gone. But, like, the JCPenney's was still there. You could still get in that elevator that, like, where um, Steven gets fucking mauled and then becomes a zombie and comes out. Yeah, escalators still there. And, like, there's there things like that that were still there. And all the um, the parking lot signs, the numbers that hung up, those were all the same. You could see the hill where the biker gang comes down and that kind of shit. Like, that was really cool. And, like... That was the only time I've ever been to Monroeville, but like it was kind of a weird bucket list thing. And I think if I'd been smarter or brought a video camera, I could have fucking blogged that thing and been like a huge vlogger then. But you don't think wow, about that. Nice. You, you don't think about that shit back then. But, you know, that was the first adult road trip I went on was the Monroeville Mall. And I remember coming back after going there and immediately watching Dawn of the Dead and like, like, yeah, I saw that. Yeah, I saw that. Yeah, I found that kind of stuff. So, I mean, it's a really cool experience. Like, I think the mall is almost completely different now. I know they have, like, a, I think a tribute, like, kind of, like, plaque for Romero there and that kind of stuff. Because, like, when we were in the early 2000s, like, I think everyone thought we were fucking insane running around <laughs> taking photos. Like, who are these fucking little dickheads? <laughs> but, you know, I now Monroeville is, I think, a very big tourist stop, spot for on the dead i think even in the mall there's like a zombie shop or something like that now they even do tours like they'll do after hours tours or like they'll have conventions and stuff like that where cast and crew show up a lot different than it was in year 2000 right on time is time has been kind to movies but so getting back and we were talking about this a little bit of this is that eventually anchor bay put out a pretty nice deluxe dvd set of dawn of the dead which had the three main versions which is the theatrical version, the um, the can cut. This was the cut they played at the Cannes Film Festival to like, you know, build up interest in it and distribution wise. Which was mislabeled as the director's cut, which I had on VHS tape. And then there's the Dario Argento cut because Dario Argento was a producer on this movie, and we'll get into this a little bit later. But basically. He helped fund the movie for basically international rights or non-English language speaking countries so he could make his own cut. And just to kind of give you a little bit of differences, like the the can, the can cut of Dawn is like scenes are a little extended. There's like little bits here and there. 
you know, a little more montages, that kind of stuff. It's realistically, it's the longest cut, like legit cut. And then in the Argento cut, it's very straight ahead. There's a little more gore shots cut in. It, a lot of the character development humor that's in the theatrical and the cans cut is kind of snipped out. It's more like straight ahead action movie. And it also has wall to wall fucking goblin in it. Mm-hmm. Whereas like the theatrical cut and then the cans cut is just like a mix of like some of the goblin score and like needle drop, like, um, you know, just music that he picked up. Like, why can't I think of the term of it? It's like, um, library music. There we go. And then there's the cut that you went and fucking watched. Hell yeah. So in the last several years, people have made super cuts of Dawn of the Dead, and they usually pop up on YouTube. And for this podcast, I thought, just keep it simple because it's the shortest cut, and basically it's the real Romero you know, director's cut. It's the theatrical cut. So it's like, watch the theatrical cut. It's a little over two hours. Somehow... Dude, you end up, would, I'm like, oh, Jim's just being nice. Just tell me, oh, send me a little link or whatever, you know? Hey, just watch this. And and I'm like, ah, I'll, oh, this one's the, this, this is the director's cut. This is the extended cut. Oh, that's, let's go. No, and then the, I realized this thing's like two hours and 40 minutes long. Yeah, this is called the ultimate cut. And this is a fan, <laughs> this is a, this is a fan made version of Dawn of the Dead. Like, it just crams every fucking shot that's in any version of that fucking movie in there. This thing is just going on and on. I've been watching this fucking movie all day, dude. I know. And, like, <laughs> when I was, like, because, like, you happened to be finishing when I came in, and I was, like, I don't remember this in the theatrical. I'm, like, I don't, what the fuck are you watching? And it was just, like, <laughs> you've watched one of these, like, fucking fan-made monstrosities. It's, like, it's cool that, you know... You can see every stitch of footage, but like editing's an important thing. And it was important to Romero, so I don't know. But that's the fucking version you watched. And I should also mention there's also a 3D version of Dawn of Dead that Richard P. Rubenstein produced. Like it's basically the theatrical cut, but they went in and added 3D effects, which is what Beyond Fest played, I think maybe 2016 or 17. I can't remember what year we played it and had Rubenstein come out for that. And that's also the version we played in 2018. The version we're playing this Black Friday is going to be 2D, regular standard Dawn of the Dead. So, I mean, I'll say this about the 3D cut. It's not bad. It's like, you know, it's not annoying. It doesn't get in the way. It kind of works. But like, does there need to be a 3D, 3D cut of Dawn? Not necessarily, but it's not bad it exists. That's my opinion on it. So now we talked about all these different versions of Dawn. And we are focusing on the theatrical cut, not whatever the fuck you watch today. <laughs> but let's talk about how did Dawn of the Dead come about, really? So firstly, Romero originally wanted to avoid doing any kind of sequel to Night Living Dead. Because he didn't want to be pigeonholed as a horror filmmaker. Which is why his follow-up the night was this movie called There's Always Vanilla, which is more of a kind of drama. It's not a bad movie, but it just didn't didn't do the numbers. And I think it's, I mean, Arrow, it's come out on DVD and Blu-ray, but when it's originally released, it was just kind of like, I hate to say a dud, but a dud. So between working in industrial films and documentaries and stuff, Romero kind of went back into horror and, you know, he didn't do it in a traditional sense. Like he just kind of like, 
I, he made a movie called Season the Witch, aka Hungry Wives, aka Jack's Wife, which is like kind of the art house leanings of there's always vanilla, but like with a witchcraft angle kind of thing in there. And it got sold as like a sexploitation movie, even though it's not really that, you know? And then he made another movie, which is kind of a step back to straight ahead horror, which is The Crazies. And I think way back when the pandemic started, I did this episode called Grindhouse Epidemic because we were we didn't know how to do the fucking podcast at this point. I did an episode on my own, and you, I think, basically just phoned in your rewatch and listen. Did in depth talked about the crazies, and I remember one of the points I made with the crazies is that it's a beefed up version of Night of the Living Dead in some ways, but it's also the template for Dawn of the Dead. So he basically. This was like the step to kind of get him there, you know, because like there's a lot of things in there that like, you know, it's I'd say it's a good warm up for it. Like the things he's like doing is like he's up in the scope that he did at night. He's upping the carnage and then like he's developing his editing style. He like Romero at this point was starting to develop a real like montage, like say like Eisenstein Soviet montage type thing. Whereas, like, he, like, lots of fast cutting, like, kind of proto, like, MTV style editing. I mean, Soviet montage is, like, one of the basic backbones of film editing. And, like, but he did it in a way it was, like, boom, boom, boom. And the crazies has this, like, frenetic, fast pace when not necessarily it's a, I wouldn't say it's really a fast paced movie, but he builds things up in the editing, which is something he does in Dawn of the Dead as well. Mm-hmm. So, this, I, I think. If you want to watch Dawn, go watch Crazies. You'll see a lot of the Crazies in Dawn, just flat out. You'll, I think you'll actually see more of the Crazies in Dawn than maybe Night of the Living Dead in some ways. But he, but that was a movie he had to make to kind of warm up to it. And then the next thing that basically happened was to get to Dawn of the Dead was it's what really was the movie that kind of really set it off was. Martin, his, like, is he or is he not vampire movie? And the reason why Martin is really important, it's not because it's aesthetically close to the crazies, because it's actually more in line with, like, Season of the Witch, because it's more kind of artsy. And there's some, you know, again, is he a vampire? Is he not a vampire? And by the way, as we're recording this, they allegedly have found the long-lost three, three to three-and-a-half-hour cut of Martin that's all in black and white. I remember on one of those Martin commentaries, I think it was the Lionsgate reissue where he talks at length about like, man, I wish I still had that cut. It was like my, it was my favorite version. Obviously it wouldn't have been commercially viable to make this movie, but like, I love this version and then it disappeared. So years later, they found it. I mean, no one, I think at this point, no one's actually popped it open and scanned it or watched it or anything like that. But it sounds like that version of Martin is found, which is really exciting because like, it's kind of a bucket list, like, dream thing to be discovered, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, it's weird that something like fucking Metropolis will, like, someone will find, like, new footage of that movie still in, like, a fucking attic in Argentina. But, like, a movie that was made in the States, developed at a lab, like, fucking disappears. Hmm. Okay. But back to, you know, why Martin's important. Like, basically, Martin kind of put together... Romero's team, the team he would basically have all the way through Day of the Dead. And I'm just going to name off these like people because they're all significant creative collaborators. You had producer Richard P. Rubenstein. You had actor and his one-time wife, Christine Forrest. 
You had actor John Applis, who also worked with casting and, you know, appeared here and there in other movies. You had director of photography Michael Gornick. There's sound, there's sound guy Tony Bubba, who, event, who also worked with um, Romero alumni Ed Harris, who was in Creepshow and Night Riders on Ed Harris's, one of Ed Harris's directorial movies, which was the Pollock, the Jackson Pollock movie. And, of course, probably Romero's most famous collaborator at this point, actor, stuntman, and special effects legend Tom Speedy. All these people worked with him on Martin. So basically, he had a crew that he could go out and do Dawn. And now that he has a team, another seed was planted. And that seed was when Romero was given a tour of Monroeville Mall. And, you know, that kind of gave him the inspiration. It's like, okay, I know how to do this movie. There's a line in the film. I think Roger says it when they're in a helicopter and they're flying over. It's like, what the hell is this place? And, like, Steven's like, oh, it's a mall. You know, one of those shopping malls. And, like, at a time, especially in the 80s, 90s, and 2000s, that line was kind of laughable because malls had became such a staple of America. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's fucking funny to think about that now. Yeah. I mean, this, this movie just makes me nostalgic for hanging out at the mall, being dropped off at the mall when I was, like, 12 or 13, buying acid by the Sam Goody. <laughs> You're just walking around the mall, just tripping your balls off. Oh, fun times. Shout out to Harford Mall. But <laughs> but no, it's like, because in the 70s, you know, shopping malls were a relative new thing. So not everyone had it. And it's funny that like mall culture, because you think in the 80s, like you had stuff like Fast Times at Richmond High and like things that are very heavily dependent on like mall culture. And then what ended up happening is like now most people don't know what the fuck a mall is. Yeah. Because, like, you know, you're getting... Most people are just having stuff delivered to their home. It's like Amazon's the mall, and you can't really shop there. Your mall's on your fucking computer monitor. So it's funny that that line has lived long enough to, like, become relevant again. Like, what the hell is that? I've gone to the Glendale Galleria. I think that's what it is, the Galleria, and walked around and been like, wow, I kind of miss... I kind of miss the mall. It, it was a, It's a different vibe, and it's just like... I mean, what really killed them all was prices. Yeah. It's like, you know, look at, you had Suncoast Video and stuff like that. And next day shipping. Next day shipping. Oh, yeah. Next day shipping and like Amazon Prime. You know? It's like, why leave the fucking house when like you can definitely get what you want next day? Mm Mm-hmm. But, you know, there's something about like walking around a mall and just, you know, perusing stores and just looking at shit that you probably won't buy and then going to a store and ending up buying some piece of shit you don't really need. Right. It's, it's something missing there. It's just weird that like malls have now vanished and like one of the focal points of this fucking movie like barely existed when it was made and now barely exists now. Hmm. Something to think about. But having this mall location was like, you know, that just gave him the cornerstone. And honestly, having the movie take place in the mall was kind of an ingenious move because then Obviously, there's stuff that happens in this movie that happens before they get them all, but, you know, it becomes a one-location movie, which is one of the perfect things for a low-budget, regional kind of horror movie, you know? And it wasn't done as as well again until uh, Paul Blart Mall Cop. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God damn it. I, I didn't even think you would pull that out. That, that, that's a... <laughs> 
I don't know, man. But the the other thing about like having a mall as your focal point is that you have different shops. So you have different locations within the one location. You know what I mean? Yeah. So you get variety and you get different looks, even though you're technically in just one location. The thing is, like, it's about tw- if you watch the theatrical cut, not whatever the fucking abomination is that you watch, but it's around the 27 minute mark that, like, you get the first shot of them all, and then, like, the rest of the movie essentially takes place there. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if it's not the mall, it's nearby, like, where all those, like, um, you know, big rigs like um tractor trailers are at dude i swear today i swear today when i was watching it i was like it's it's 40 minutes in and they get to the mall and i'm like holy (laughs) shit dude this is taking for fucking ever (laughs) no it it it, it's supposed to be 27 minutes and then the rest of the two hours of the runtime of the theatrical cut is in and around the mall oh man god damn man (laughs) but you know there so he has a location that makes it, you know, becomes this practical thing. And the last thing that kind of like sealed Dawn of the Dead and making it happen was another horror leg- legend had become aware of it and was like, hey, I'll give you some money. I want to be part of this. And that was, of course, you know, Dario Argento. And, you know, Argento, he's a producer, but he was also kind of an advisor on it or a consultant. He actually flew Romero out to Italy and had him, like, you know, put him up in, like, some hotel and, like, fed him spaghetti every night. And, like, this is what Romero said. I'm not trying to be this racist is, Yeah, here. this is, I mean, come on, dog. Yeah, I'm not trying to be racist. But no, Romero's like, no yeah. fucking spaghetti jokes. Look. <laughs> they like spaghetti in Italy. I'm sorry. But anyway, Romero would said he would, like, you know, eat spaghetti every night. And he would just write there. And, like, Argento didn't have a say in, like, that creative process. Argento said, you can make the version you want. But when you're done, I'm going to recut the movie to a version I'm going to do out in the rest of the your like non-English speaking countries. So that's basically what laid it in. And it was not only Argento, but it was his brother Claudio and um, Alfredo Cuomo was another co-financer and like, you know, producer on the movie. And like, you know, we'll talk about that impact later in the episode because like that also it goes beyond just Dawn of the Dead with what they ended up doing. So. We're going to take another quick commercial break, but we'll return more Dawn of the Dead here on the Cinematic Void Podcast. My name is Martin, and I'm 84 years old. People think I'm crazy when I tell them how old I am, or else they think I'm some kind of ghost. From the director of Night of the Living Dead, Martin, another kind of terror. I just have a sickness. I just need to drink blood. Welcome back. We've been talking about George A. Romero's immortal classic, Dawn of the Dead, here on the Cinematic Void Podcast. And now we're going to talk about a little bit about the film itself. We're not going to do like a full kind of play-by-play like we did for The Fog. But we'll kind of hit on some major points and that kind of stuff as we go along. Uh, the first thing I want to talk about is the core cast of this movie, which is David M. Gee as Steven, Ken Foray as Peter, Scott H. Renninger as Roger, and Galen Ross as Francine, which I think is, that is a perfect fucking cast. I don't know. Mwah. 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 <laughs> you know, just imagine me doing that. Just doing that. <laughs> doing the chef's kiss there. <laughs> yeah. I think, you know, the the thing is they're all grounded in 
reality, and it, I think it all works. And I think if you miscast this movie, I think it tanks, but because they all work so well together, it's just like this perfect storm, because those are the four people that you have to be around. And like, they're all flawed, they all have issues, they all do unlikable shit at different points, mm-hmm. but overall, you kind of root for them. So, let's talk about basically the opening of this movie, and we were talking a little bit about this beforehand, and... I'm going to talk about the shot and then we'll talk about the other part of this here is that basically the opening shot starts on this red carpet wall that kind of slowly zooms out and reveals Francine asleep. And then you get the title card and then she like, there's like a shock cut or jump cut or something like that where she's awakened and someone grabs her like, Hey, are you okay? Like, you know, she just had a nightmare, but in reality she just is waking up to a real nightmare. So you and I, we're trying to figure out, was fucking carpeted walls a thing in the 70s? Yeah, like, was this ever done in homes, or was this just specifically for this kind of recording or, like, television studio? And I, I think it's probably, you know, you'd throw it up there and deaden the sound a bit. It, I guess it's the 70s. It looks cool, I guess. I mean, I, I mean, the first scene actually takes place in, in, like, a news station kind of thing. And, like, I think the theory that... I think what's really right is that it's, like, the deaden the sound. Mm-hmm. And like the cut down on bleed and shit like that. Then you had, you had mentioned uh, though that, you know, people were putting up like shag carpeting in their vans, you know, just like to smoke weed in your van or whatever. Yeah. Like there's a, sh- there's a shot <laughs> later in Dawn that where like the biker gang has a van and they open the van. There's like carpet on that. So maybe just, I don't know if you live through the seventies, tell me, was there just carpet on everything? Did you open your mailbox and there was fucking carpeting inside? I don't fucking know. I mean, I've seen a lot of seventies movies, but like the, I feel like because this is opening shot and you can't help but fixate it because one, it's a blinding red fucking carpet on a wall mm-hmm. that kind of calls attention. So maybe now every time I watch a seventies movie, I'm just going to be looking for carpet in random places. Someone opens a fridge, fucking carpet in there, that kind of stuff. I don't know. You know, it's just symbolism, symbolism for what's to come. You know, the terror, the red behind her. Yeah. You know? I mean, that's also the other thing. I mean, it's obviously setting up. It's like there there will be blood. Yeah. The way Dawn is supposed to be set up, and this is based on like one of the commentaries or interview I remember hearing from Romero. He basically said Dawn of the Dead takes place the day after the events of Night of the Living Dead. And I know that that's kind of a hard jump because you got to think, you know, Night of the Living Dead's stark black and white, kind of lo-fi, like one of the great horror movies. And then you're getting to like poppy kind of like, I don't want to say technicolor, but definitely more colorful comic booky kind of thing. But if you think about it, the logic makes sense because when you watch Night of the Living Dead, there's a lot of scenes of people watching TV, looking at for those news bulletins of rescue stations and shit like that. And one of the main plot points of like what's happening in this open scene at dawn is like they're putting up rescue stations that have been taken out and overrun with zombies. So they're basically sending people to go fucking die. Mm-hmm. And that's part of the debate going on. And, like, it, you know, another thing I really like about this opening is, like, I love newsroom movies. Like, you know, newspaper or TV temps. You know, stuff like fucking Network's My Shit. Right. Same with all the President's Men and that kind of stuff. I love newsroom movies. So, like, the fact that it kicks off with that is just like a, ah, that's my fucking chef's kiss here. And then, you know, you also get George Romero and Christine Forrest's little cameo in this movie because they're in the switcher room, I guess, where they're, like, putting up, the, like, the... Rescue stations or, you know, switching cameras and that kind of stuff. I mean, it's really cool. It's like a nice little cameo because I think Romero and her were supposed to have a 
different cameo where they were supposed to be part of the biker gang and he's supposed to be dressed as Santa and she was supposed to be dressed as one of the elves. Yeah. Or they were going to do both. I don't know. The big thing is, like, yeah, Francine, not sure what to do. She's on the air, like, saying, hey, you're giving bad information about these rescue stations. Lots of yelling, people just walking off, throwing cameras around. And they got Steven roll up to her, who's the fucking, like, traffic reporter. It's like, yo, we're going to take the helicopter and we're getting the fuck out of here. And she has this more dilemma about, like, abandoning her post. And then, like, one of the guys that's running the camera or took over one of the cameras after someone just said, fuck this and quit offers, I think, a really great line in this movie. Because they're talking about, like, you know, it doesn't matter. At midnight, emergency stations takes over TV. And he basically says, our responsibility is finished. Yeah. Which means it doesn't fucking matter anymore. It's like, it it's out, out of our hands. There's you know? no news station tomorrow. Yeah. It doesn't matter. Just get in the helicopter and fuck out of here. Yeah. And it, it really hits kind of hard because it's like, after, I, I don't like keep on bringing up the pandemic, but like, I can't help it with this movie because like, you kind of see like the way things are handled is like, it got too far ahead and there's too many different opinions on what should have been done. And instead of working together on like a solution, everyone's just fighting themselves. And when you fight yourselves, that just let shit spread, you know? Mm-hmm. I'm not trying to say, like, metaphorically, but, like, people are wondering where, like, why we were at, where we were at during the fucking beginning of the pandemic. Just watched all of the dead. Yeah. It's just, like, people have different opinions. You know, sometimes they're overly political. Sometimes it's just people, like, arguing science and shit like that. You know, people, like, oh, a zombie invasion or, like, a epidemic could never really happen. Not after last year, dog. I believe anything could happen. Yeah. Because I feel like, you know, it just takes like a couple people like, I don't fucking care about this, whatever. Or, no, I don't agree with this. I'm going to let this happen. Which kind of leads into the next big scene, which is the Project House raid with the police. And at this point, you still haven't seen a fucking zombie in this movie. Yeah. You just, that dread is there. And they're explaining like, you know, get up, whatever it kills gets up to kills and that kind of stuff. And you're not sure why they're at this tenant house. And basically, they're like, they basically have everyone from all the different, like, you know, project houses in this one building. And what happens is, like, they decide, like, the, the gang decides this is our people. You're not getting on the turf. And they get in a shootout with the cops. And that's when you start seeing some of those Tom Savini effects. You get to see squibs. It's very Sam Peckinpah-like, you know, the squibs. So you have, like, entry and exit wounds. Lots of blood coming out. But you don't get the big shit yet. You also get... John Amplis, who is Martin, and Martin has a cameo in it. He plays Martinez, which I think in this day and age, you could never get a white actor to play a Hispanic character. And I don't think, obviously, Romero was of Cuban descent. So I don't think there's like any kind of like, I'm just saying like, it. it's the one thing in this movie that didn't age well was putting John Amplis in brown face. Mm-hmm. And, but I don't think there was any ill intent about, behind it. I think it's just more or less hey, John, we want to give you a cool role. We want you to be unrecognizable for Martin. This is what we do. It's more of like a theatrical standpoint because you got to think of like a lot of the people Romero cast were like theater actors and like things were different then. So that's all I'm going to say about that. Not defending, not calling out as this big issue, but it is the one thing that just didn't age well in this movie, especially for how political and like philosophical and just like how on the nose especially after last year, this movie hits. So you also have 
the racist cop. Seems legit, especially in the last year, or last several years. You have Wooly, who's mad because a bunch of poor people have it better than him. That's kind of the mantra of, like, right-wing stuff fed to, like, other poor people. It's like, these poor people have it better than you do. It's like, no, you're, you're all fucking poor. And then Wooly basically taking out his, like, rage and just goes through just fucking gunning once he gets into the projects, right inside the building, you know? And that's where you get your first big effect, which is that, that head explosion. Mm-hmm. You remember when you first saw that head explosion? When, like, he kicks in the door and just blows that dude's fucking head off? Oh, yeah. It's really quick, but it's just like, oh, shit. And, like, that's the moment in the movie you realize, like, Romero, Savini, they're not fucking around. It's going down. It's it's going down, and it's getting real. Because, like, when you blow someone's fucking head off in the movie, like, I, this is pre-scanners. So, like... I don't think there's an exploding head in a movie before Dawn of the Dead. I could be wrong. The other thing you got to think about, and this is going to kind of backtrack here, is like between Night and Dawn, there wasn't a lot of like zombie movies. There was like obviously the Blind Dead movies coming out of Spain as well as like Living Dead and Manchester Morgue. Those are like the two bigger ones. And like Manchester Morgue is obviously influenced by Night of the Living Dead. And there's extreme gore in there too. But like really between Night and Dawn, there's not a lot of zombie stuff. Mm-hmm. And also, like, this is kind of the beginning of the effects boom. Because you had Dick Smith doing the effects for The Exorcist and that kind of stuff. But, like, that exploding head is, like, such a game changer. Because it changes. It's like, I don't know what the fuck's going to happen after this. Yeah. And, you know, kind of get in there. Wooly's going ape shit. Roger tries to stop him. And you get the first appearance of Peter Ken Foray with one of those gas masks on. And he just fucking caps dude because he's just like running amok and he kicks open one of the doors where there's a bunch of zombies in it and then you have these you know they go and trying to kill these zombies and you're like oh these are undead but then you get kind of this moral thing where they're like they're telling this one cop like shoot it shoot in the head kind of thing and the guy can't do it because it's just like he's scared it's like is it a person what the fuck is it and it just creates chaos and like that's kind of the moral dilemma of the movie it's like people being too emotionally invested like these are people and are they people or whatever you know what i mean because that one cop that couldn't shoot the zombie who eventually does shoot zombie fucking kills himself after he fucks everything up Mm -hmm. which also leads to that one zombie like shambling around and goes finds his wife and then takes a bite out of her neck and her arm which is again another game-changing thing there was definitely some zombie eating flesh in night living dead as well as lanchester morgue but like that bite that zombie takes out of that woman's neck, holy fucking shit. Yeah. It's fucking crazy. Rewatching it recently, it's like, it's, it's so seamless. Mm-hmm. It's fucking insane. When the cops are debating, like, should I, should I shoot him or whatever? You know, at, I mean, this film makes it explicit where the line is, but, you know, it, it, there's a point where you see someone else as another. Yeah. You know? Yeah, because, like, you have all the newscasters, you have all the scientists, you have, like, all kinds of stuff going on. But then, like, towards the end of the Project House raid, we're on Peter and Roger going to that little, like, basement area where they dumped a bunch of zombies and they start fucking capping them. Mm-hmm. Basically cleaning house of, like, a lot of the zombies that, like, they were saving because, like, these people were like, these are our friends and family. We yeah. don't want them burned. Mm-hmm. And then you have that priest show up, the one-legged priest. After when, like, Roger and 
Well, I know. Actually, that's before they go and... Sorry, I'm getting off track here. But, like, before they go and, like, cap all those zombies in the basement, they come across the one-legged priest who's, like, basically saying, you know, you gotta stop the killing or you lose the war kind of thing. But, like, if you don't kill the zombie, they're gonna kill you. So, it's just people have all these, like, moral dilemmas. But, like, I think when, like, Roger and Peter just, like, know that, like, these things are fucking dead. Fuck them. Kill them. Right. But at the same time, we need to get the fuck out of here. Because Roger's like, yo, my homie's got a helicopter. Let's bounce. Yeah. So they do. And that's when we kind of get into, like, heading towards the mall or, you know, you know, trying to find a direction. And, like, it's kind of crazy because, like, you know, they're flying over what they say is, like, not, I think they're already past Harrisburg at this point. But, like, they have the rednecks out. Mm-hmm. Who are like just think they're out fucking hunting, so you get another kind of wrinkle in how like zombie human relationship, where like these rednecks are just like shit, yeah, we're gonna fucking shoot some things, mm-hmm. and there's like a little montage in there, and they're like drinking beer, and like the fucking national guard and the army are kind of making fun of these dudes, but like they're just out fucking just shooting shit, and it's kind of like that disconnect. It's like you have people that are morally thinking this is wrong to kill someone even though they're undead or whatever. And then you have people like, woohoo. Yeah. It's, it's crazy because like there's different stuff and you know, they're flying over and eventually they're going to stop and get gas. Cause they don't know where the fuck. I think the plan was to get to Canada. Cause even now the plan for a lot of people is to get to Canada because like they have healthcare, you know, I think they have better weed in Canada. They have hockey some cool bands i guess they keep their borders tighter so like you could fly your helicopter over canada and be straight but you know they land at some random like dink airport where like a couple things happen you get the you know the helicopter zombie gets the top of his head chopped off which is my least favorite effect in the movie you know i don't know how you feel about it it's all right yeah i i, I think because they the the head ended up being like a flat top, so it looked like a fucking Frankenstein. Yeah. And it's just like I I don't think the effect's bad. It's just like I just it's not my favorite effect. That's fair. I mean, I don't know if that's fair. I shouldn't say it's fair for me to dislike it. I know that might be someone else's favorite effect, but you have that. You also get the poster zombie, the one that's on the fucking poster, the bald headed zombie in the flannel shirt mm-hmm. that like. Basically, um, Steven tries to shoot and then misses, and then, you know, Peter comes up to him and is like, never aim a gun at me, you know, uh, someone you don't intend to shoot at or something, mister, kind of line, where you have all this tension. <laughs> tension from getting gas. And, you know, once they gas up, they land at this mall, you know, and you get Roger's infamous, what the hell is this? And from there on, it, it comes down to, like, we could get some supplies and leave, or we can make this shit work. Now, they have to do some ballsy shit to secure this mall. It's not just, it's a process. Because, like, they do a couple, like, dry runs of, like, getting stuff and, like, making sure the zombies don't follow them up. You also have that Harry Krishna zombie that goes after Francine that sneaks up and, like, they have to kill, but they can't shoot because they call attention to themselves. And then, like, you know, they devise this plan. So the good portion of this movie is coming up with this plan to secure the mall. And it's quite elaborate. And I think if someone was trying to make Dawn of the Dead today, you couldn't do it this way. You couldn't have scenes of, like, you know, all right, we got to map this out. 
We're going to do okie dokes. We're going to get these tractor trailers. We're going to block the entrance so they don't have leverage to get in. Like, you wouldn't get any of that shit. They might have done... I don't even think they did that in the Dawn remake. I think they did some stuff like that, but like... They just locked the fucking door? Just locked... The, there's, no, <laughs> there's no fucking planning. And like... You know, because, like, it's elaborate, it's a lot of back and forth. Like, you see them, like, dropped off the helicopter or whatever. They go pick up these tractor trailers, take one, and then, like, they have to drive back and get another one. Like, this tedious thing. But also shows where, like, Roger starts getting cocky and he's not paying attention and he almost gets fucking eight picking up one of these trucks. And then he still gets cocky and leaves his, like, fucking bag where he's using the hot wire, all these things. They have to go back and get it. And then he gets bit. And it makes things more difficult. But, you know, as what happens in this movie, they they decide to hotwire one of the fucking cars in the mall. Do you remember going in the mall and seeing cars in the mall? Hell yeah, you could win one. Yeah, you could win. Did anyone ever win a fucking mall car? I mean, did anyone ever try? That's that's probably the fairer point because, like, I think it's one of those things. So I was like, yeah, I could win a car, but like, I feel like he had to do some elaborate to win one of those fucking cars. But it's some shit where you just have to like, you win the car, but you pay all the fucking taxes on it. And you're out like fucking yeah, a it, bunch of money that you didn't intend to spend in the first place. It's a fucking racket. Yeah. It, it, you don't really <laughs> win a car. You're still paying for that car. You just basically put in for a raffle to buy a car or pay partially for a car. But, you know, they have to secure the mall, and he's like, hey, the car's the fastest way to do it. And you get another thing where they're driving around the mall, and they're locking doors, and they're shooting, and they're like, all right, we're going to go for a hunt. And then you get kind of at the end where, like, all these dead zombies are all that, and they're like, in theory, they won. They secured the place. Mm -hmm. And then that's when, you know, things started to turn, because, like, they're trying to make normalcy out of being in the mall. And, like, there's one point after they clean it up and they got all kinds of stuff and they like, they went shopping. I'm using shopping in quotes kind of thing. Like they hear the zombie still banging outside where you get all in Peter's. There's no more room in hell speech about his grandfather being a priest in Trinidad, the Macumba and that kind of stuff. And it just kind of realizes like they're secure for now, but it's still fucking hopeless because where are they going to go? They have to stay in the mall. Like, they have every luxury except freedom. Right. And that's kind of the cool dynamic is just, like, they have security, but, like, it's not really security. They're watching, like, the emergency channel, and they have this scientist played by Richard France, who, incidentally enough, was in Romero's Crazies, and he's got an eye patch, and he's basically saying, like, things people don't want to hear. It's like, let's use our nuclear options. Let's bomb every major city. We'll get rid of most of the zombies that way. I tell you what, I'd probably take Fauci a little more seriously if he had an eye patch. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck. Imagine if he had an eye patch. I mean, th- there is that one fucking asshole congressman that has one. Yeah, fucking Dan, whatever the, fuck. the The one that Pete Davidson made fun of, and then he had to apologize to, and then the guy said something fucking completely, like, asinine, and I don't know. No, but um, Richard Francis' character is kind of really important because, like, he's saying things that, like, people don't necessarily like, and people were like, it's that moral ground of, like, what do you do with these zombies? It's like, if, you know, they're, if they bite you, you become one. So you have to eliminate them. And I think his other option was to fucking start feeding them and, like, domesticate them. 
which is kind of funny because that's what they started working on in Day of the Dead with like Dr. Frankenstein and um, Bub. Mm-hmm. Like they started rewarding him by feeding him if he could, you know, do things. So it's interesting that like that's the through line from Dawn to Day was that part of it. So the option's like, well, if you don't want to get rid of them, you have to fucking feed them because if you don't feed them, they're going to fucking eat you. And it's not even that they need to eat. It's just the idea of eating because it's just something that's instinctually there because they're down to like just being primitive or you just fucking nuke everywhere. Right. And I'm trying to think, I, I know that there was a, a, there was maybe one called like Fido or something where they, t- that they took the idea and completely to its, Lo- it's, you know, it's logical or illogical conclusion. <laughs> it's illogical confusion. I guess they did that in uh, Shaun of the Dead as well, and probably a few others at this point. You know, as many fucking zombie movies as they've made. Yeah, and <laughs> but yeah, but this one is like it's not a joke. It's not a thing. It's just like yeah, what it's else, like what that's you're gonna do with these fuckers. Yeah, because know? like basically, the the more you let them continue, the more they're gonna continue to breed. Mm-hmm. And, like, you know, with Day, you get a little more answers because you start seeing how the zombies are decaying and still functioning and that kind of stuff. So, basically, these motherfuckers could just be skeletons walking around at some point. I don't think Romero ever got a zombie to that far of a point. Because, like, the only way a zombie dies in these movies is fucking brain gets shot. Right. Because it's got to rot off at some point. Yeah. That has to be, like, what eventually happens. But, you know... They've taken them all at this point, and then that's when Roger dies, and he has his big zombie turn. And it's during like that that speech where he's like, "We have to remain, you know, what what's the fucking thing he says? Unemotional. We have to remain unemotional." And fucking Peter has to fucking cap Roger because he turned. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's just like the movie just keeps going like darker and darker. Like they are literally in a fucking prison. Yeah, of their own design. Yeah, I mean. Is it safer than the zombies out there? In some ways, but some ways not. You know, it's it's definitely like it. The, how deep this movie is is just like the you know mental deterioration. It's like just think of like the pandemic and like having to stay inside in one place for long periods of time. I mean, look if there was if there's a fucking gym in there, if there's and if there's a grocery store, which there probably isn't in, in a mall, but like. I, don't know, I guess you got your food courts and whatnot, right? Yeah. So you got some food for a little while that you can yeah. make. But, like, you're fucking set, dog. You're set for a minute. Yeah, but you also got to think of the mental wear of, like, being in the same place. And we're all eventually going to be living in pods. Well, I mean... <laughs> eating, eating bugs, living in pods. I mean, we could already be in the Matrix. We're just fucking or, batteries. We're that, yeah. But I'm just saying, like... <laughs> we're just batteries. We're just fucking batteries. We're just fueling some... We're fueling fucking Jeff Bezos fucking, like, um launch the space you know <laughs> that's for sure the thing is it's just like you get cabin fever mm-hmm. like you can go th- like there's a there's a bit where peter is playing like racquetball or tennis with by himself on the roof like hitting the ball back and forth is like some form of exercise and like that's the extent that's the extent of going outside and getting sunshine and stuff like that because you're also depriving yourself of like vitamin d and that kind of stuff oh so far you're still i'm i'm not convinced i'm i'm Throw me a tech, take me to the mall. Let's go. If I can get on the roof and get some sun too, fucking lock me in. I mean, it might work for some people, but like, I, I think eventually it's just like, you know, I, my mental, like mentally I deteriorate a lot. We got a bookstore. We got everything. 
You got everything. It's like, but at sea. Video my, games. I can watch movies all day. Read, exercise, go on the roof, get some sun, cook. Fuck, dude. Yeah, I mean, I understand that, but I'm saying mentally <laughs> for me, I, I would eventually just fucking jump off the roof and let Especially if I'm there alone, then I'm fucking good. Yeah, because <laughs> you don't have to deal with anyone else. But like, <laughs> no, nah, I'm I'm just saying like my pandemic experiences, like I, I literally had burnout and mental fatigue for being like, I mean, we obviously went out and did stuff. We were at the drive-in and things like that, but like, you know, there wasn't much else. It's like you'd go for drives and stuff like that. But like, you know, like I got serious fucking burnout mental fatigue from this goddamn fucking pandemic. And like just the thought of being in one place, even with everything at my fingertips, having every fucking book or at least every book that was published up until like before shit shut down or like, you know, have a variety of food and like, you know, being able to play video games and stuff like that. Eventually, because you only have those options, those options are going to eventually start wearing out. Or maybe it's just how I relate to it now where, like, you live in a realm of technology, you know, because, like, you know, when Dawn of the Dead is made, you only had, like, you had vinyl records or cassettes or 8-tracks. You know, you had certain movies you could watch. You know, you had certain video games. It's not like you have a smartphone during 1978 that will yeah, constantly update, update where you get, like, new apps and, like, new games and, like... Atari sucks. Yeah, <laughs> it kind of does. Like when you watch them play some of those fucking video games, it's like that shit's whack, man. Yeah, and it's just like fucking jump off the roof and get eaten by the zombies. I can't play Pac-Man anymore. Mm-hmm. It, I'm just saying from my personal standpoint, mentally, like I feel like everything would start losing its edge, and it would just all seem the same. For sure. Maybe not for you, but for me. And I think at some point I'd just say fucking jump off the roof and let the zombies eat me. There you go. Or that just might be, like, the fucking pandemic burnout talking for me. Because there's times it's like, I just want to get the fuck out of here and go somewhere. Mm-hmm. And I know people did during the pandemic, but, like, yeah. I don't know. I mean, I joke. You know, it's like, but but I will say that half the time, maybe more than half the time, I wasn't so bummed being stuck in my house. I'll put it that way. I've got, you know, I could entertain myself for quite some time. I mean, that's a fair point. I mean, it wasn't all bad, but it's just, I'm saying, like, just coming out of it and realizing, like, mentally. Mm-hmm. You feel you feel a little better now. I feel a little <laughs> better, and I feel uneasy at the same time, which kind of leads into the next thing, where it's, like, dealing with other people, because you have your own pot of people you deal with. Like, mm-hmm. you know, I saw you during the pandemic. I saw my wife and that kind of stuff, and I saw different people that drive in, but, like, outside of going, like, the fucking grocery store, and at a certain point, like, that got cut back, because we just started having food delivered. You know, mm-hmm. groceries delivered. Unless I had to go to Trader Joe's. Like, I didn't interact with, like, really people I didn't really know. And when I did, it got fucking scary. Like, I remember fucking meltdown after melt. Every time I went to Trader Joe's to go get something. Because I couldn't get it at Whole Foods. Because, you know, being vegan, sometimes your op- options are split out. Split up. I don't know how I'd be vegan during a pandemic. I probably wouldn't be. Beyond- or not pandemic. I mean, like, through a Dawn of the Dead scenario. <laughs> you know. I mean, I guess there's cans of beans and shit like that, but, like, I think that'd be, like, deprioritized, honestly, if I was going through that. But that's that's a debate for another day. But interacting with other people outside of your pod, every time I went to fucking Trader Joe's, there was someone having a fucking meltdown. And it was, like, it was someone, like, I remember one time I was there, and some guy's, like, throwing the biggest shit fit I've ever seen in a grocery store because he grabbed a thing of cheese and it was moldy. He's like, we're in a fucking pandemic, and this cheese is moldy. 
And they're like, all right, sir, we'll go ahead and check you out now. <laughs> all right, sir, you just answered your own fucking question. Yeah, it's <laughs> Stop like... being a baby. I mean, that's the thing. It's like, <laughs> I and I saw multiple times, I saw people get almost in fights over fucking items of food. Which kind of leads to the next part of the mall thing is when, you know, there's a bit where Francine's like, I want to know how to fly the fucking helicopter in case we have to get out of here. Of course, by her learning how to fly the helicopter, it caught the attention of a traveling biker gang. Right. And those are the people, not necessarily the people at Trader Joe's, but those are the people that have malicious intent and are looking to start shit and don't give a fuck about your feelings or you know what um, you're doing. You know, as far as suspension of disbelief goes, you know, the zombie thing I can deal with, but my entire life, it's always been, it's, it's always been made to seem that flying a helicopter is like serious business. Like you can't learn to fly a helicopter in a couple hours or in a day. So that was the one part of this movie where I'm like, all right, this isn't fucking real. I mean, you only get to see a slice a day in the life here. (laughs) I mean, I know this movie kind of goes over things that shows you in detail, like the multiple things they do, but like, I'm going to give it the benefit down and say there's been multiple times that she's like practiced flying. It's actually pretty funny how it's just like, this is how it goes up. This is how it goes down. Like, that's it. And like, she's like, yeah. Like, all right. You fucking just learned how to fly a helicopter then. All right. Congratulations. Like that guy had to go to fucking like air traffic school or some shit like that. And it's mm-hmm. like, here, let me bestow your now my knowledge to you in like. 15 minutes of being in a helicopter. I actually believe for this movie, like there's probably like more training. We just didn't have to see it in the movie. Of course. Which is, but this is after like showing you meticulously how they fucking shut off the mall, you know? (laughs) Right. But right. They spent so much time showing off the mall. Not that anyone really needs to see a whole tutorial on how flying a helicopter. I mean, I'm surprised for the sake of, uh, you know, progress in the film here. I mean, I'm surprised in the version you watched today they didn't have a fucking they have that in there. <laughs> fucking thirty minute scene of her learning how to fly. This is the on off switch. This is how you get make the propellers. This is how you know, I, I I'm just fucking with you at this point, but but the bigger picture is that they're now on the radar of some fucking not so good people. And, you know, this the, is like the bad guys. The bad guys, the looters, like, you know. When we were going through all that shit last summer during like black lives matter protests and stuff like you know there's people honestly protesting stuff and then you had people that were there just to steal shit these are the dudes here just just to steal shit or just to steal shit i should say and the old bad guy biker trope yeah but like i think these are legit played or i think these were legit played by a biker gang i think they said the pagans which was actual biker gang from where we're from okay like there's the Hell's Angels is basically like a California based like biker gang and Pagans was kind of East Coast. And they did stuff like run drugs and stuff like that. My mom's side of the family had a few like relatives that were in the gang that had to go witness protection and that kind Hell of shit. Oh yeah. Right on. Crazy fucking shit. But anyway, so you have this biker gang and this is where you get Tom Savini, who's actually popped up in the movie several times because he does a lot of the stunts. So anytime you see, like, it's either him or his assistant who are doing stunts. So he's doing all the fucking baller effects, and he was doing stunts. Because Savini is like, fuck it, I'm just going for it. But this is his acting role, when he's got that fucking switchblade mustache comb or whatever. And, like, basically, the biker gang's like, we're going to take your shit. Hey, so real quick. So back in the day, maybe before you, was your dad ever the type of guy to, like, ride a motorcycle? 
He did have. He kind of looks like the kind of guy that maybe did was like did some badass shit back in the day. He he had a fucking Triumph motorcycle when I was a kid, and then he got rid of it because he was afraid I would try to ride it. I'm like I'm like fucking two. I'm not gonna figure out how to ride a motorcycle. So I to this day I don't understand why he got rid of his Triumph. <laughs> and boy, I've the asked, boy might steal it. it. Like I'm a fucking two year old. I'm not gonna fucking steal your Triumph, Dad. Like I don't understand why he got rid of it. Like it, <laughs> it, it still boggles my mind. But my dad had a Triumph motorcycle. Okay, and kind of wish he still did. Like I feel like he gave something up he didn't have to. I, th- I think that he and your mom should get some of those like big ass bikes. You know, they're just like sitting on a fucking couch. You know, oh those like just fucking... like cruise around Hartford County. Yeah, I, I mean my dad's like over eighty now, so I don't <laughs> think okay. that. I don't think motorcycles is... nice leisurely ride. You know, yeah, fuck on a Sunday cruise. Yeah, I, I I think my dad's past that point. Want to do that, but. <laughs> But no, without my dad being part of this gang, you have the biker siege. You basically, what, you know, Ken is Peter says, like, this is a professional army coming in here. They, all they do is fucking loot, steal, and, like, survive on the road. And basically, all that hard work, and this is what kind of makes it work that, like, all the tedious part of, like, securing them all, locking it off, is, like, basically in, like, five minutes, these fucking bikers are in, and all the fucking zombies are back in the mall. Mm-hmm. And they're stealing stuff, and then you get that other moral thing that's happening in this movie, which is Stephen is now protective of the space, and whereas like Peter and Francine are more like, let's just secure ourselves and make sure we're safe and be prepared to fucking roll out if we need to. Mm-hmm. What side of this do you sit on? Do you try to secure and save the? Do you fight for them all, or do you get the fuck out? I mean, again, I guess I, I mean, I, I was kind of joking, but I'm definitely pro mall here, you know, um, where else are we going? Is there, you know, I mean, I guess that I, I guess really is the question is like, how hopeful are you? How hopeful are you is that there's some, there's something better, you know, there's something better out there to go to, to get re- rescued from that. Um, but yeah, I think at this point I'm, I'm at the mall. This is, this is the best we're getting. We found the fucking jackpot. We got it secured. Let's fucking keep it secured. So that's the big moral dilemma. And like you're you you're pro mall. You would try to fight to save it. And you know I've had different times I've watched this movie. I've thought of alternate scenarios that could happen. Like, do you hide, let the bikers raid, and then go about resecuring the mall? Hmm. No, that's my mall. Fuck those bikers. We're 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 good. We're you know it it's on. So there's three of you. There's, there's three of you against like 30, 40, 50 bikes. There's a gun store. Yeah, but and we're pretty we're pretty well stocked. We're I guess the, there's three of us. We're cops. Two of us are cops. Well, one of us is a cop. One at, one at this point. One cop. The other cops dead. You have a fucking like. I mean, I guess I'm saying I'm assuming I'm I'm somewhat trained. Yeah. I or, mean, am I me? <laughs> <laughs> What's going on here? <laughs> am I him? <laughs> I don't know, man. I guess think it. That's a good. That is a good fucking point. Are you you? Or are you Steven? Or you like? Jesus Christ. Um, but uh, but yeah, I, I guess it really is the more the more pessimistic uh, view. I think is probably staying at the mall. Really, but well, I don't know though. But I'm saying though, maybe there's nothing better out there, and maybe this is the. Yeah, maybe I found the jackpot. Cause like, here are your options. You cause like you fight the bikers. And we see how that went in the movie. Yeah. You basically lose them all. 
Do you just hide and let them take whatever they want and then go about resecuring it and realizing it's going to be a tedious process again and knowing full well that it could happen again? Mm-hmm. And then you have to figure out how to secure them all even more. And this is the other thing you're talking about because, like, you know, the zombies are one factor, but then you're dealing with other people, which is another parallel to what we just went through. It's like you have people getting sick, dying, spreading, that kind of stuff. And then you have people that are just like, don't give a fuck making things worse. Do you think that these bikers are, you know, is their mission just to rampage and, and a little, a little conquering or, or are they, you know, is it a siege for the mall? Are they taking the mall? Like, do you think, does that seem to be the intent here? You know? So like, maybe they are just gonna, it's a little fly by night, break some shit, take a couple things as much as they can carry. Yeah. And then take off. Right. So then I come out and go, all right, well, Let's fucking board this shit up. I, I, I don't think the the bikers definitely don't want the mall. They they just want the shit in the mall because their whole thing is like this is the other side of the pandemic. It's like refusing to be locked in a space, refusing to like, you know, mm. wait it out. They're just it's like fuck it. We don't care. We're on the road. We're out here. Fuck zombies, fuck disease, whatever. We're like we're just doing whatever the fuck we want. And in fact, because it's now in the scenario, they could be like, it's completely, there's no fucking rules. Mm-hmm. And they're already outlaws, so if you're an outlaw and there's no fucking rules, you're gonna, you're loving this shit. Oh yeah, this shit is sick. You're fucking thriving in this. You're thriving in the fact that people are scared. Because not only are they scared of zombies, they're fucking scared of you. Okay, I've got my answer. I'm joining their crew. <laughs> <laughs> but would they accept you is the thing. Ah. Uh. I don't know. Because, like, the the thing is, it's like, the bikers don't give a fuck that you're living or dead. It's just about taking shit. It's like, that's mine. Fuck you, that's mine. Mm-hmm. And that's the other dynamic. And then, but you have Steven who says, no, fuck you, it's mine. Because, mm-hmm. like, they could, I think the plan was, like, just let them go through and see and then just kind of wait it out. And, like, I think one theory is maybe if they didn't, Fuck with them. They just see if they can resecure them all, or they just take all their supplies and shit and just go somewhere else. Or you know, you know, there's there's different things, but that didn't happen because they engage with the bikers, and also kind of fucked up the bikers too because then the bikers are like think it's an easy like take shit run, and then the bikers are now engaged in trying to fucking kill the people in the mall. Mm-hmm. You know, Stephen and um Peter, and Peter just starts fucking sniping a bunch of them and then because they get sloppy and they're not paying attention a bunch of them get eaten there's also the one asshole in the fucking sombrero with the swastika on his shirt that decides to get his fucking blood pressure red but i think that's just a fucking gag that, that, that's all that is in the movie it's just like what other fucking ridiculous zombie gag can we have in here oh we'll just have some idiot getting his blood pressure taken while there's zombies everywhere you have that, you have Steven getting shot, and he's trying to escape through the elevator, and then the zombies come, and basically he gets bit, and he becomes, you know, King Zombie. And this is the most interesting thing, because, like, you kind of wonder what the intelligent level of the zombie is. Mm-hmm. And how much memory they have of their old life. Because the whole point of Dawn of the Dead is, like, why are they coming to the mall? It's just something they remember they did when they were alive. So there's just some put-in memory. And the thing that happens, because you got to remember in the mall, at a certain point after they take it over, they want to hide where, like, the access to where they're at. Because in case someone comes in, like the bikers did, 
they can't find where they're holed up and have all their storage stuff so they can hide out there and then kind of decide if they're going to retake them all and stuff. Mm -hmm. King Zombie Steven, on the other hand, knows where they're at and goes directly there trying to get back because he has a memory like, uh, this is where my friends and family are. Mm -hmm. Which is an interesting dynamic if you think about it. Right. And he basically leads all the zombies up to where Peter and Fran are hanging out. And this is a point we can talk about, you know, the original ending versus the ending you get in the film. So the original ending of Dawn of the Dead was pretty bleak. They kill Steven as he rolls in. And then, you know, Peter's like, I don't want to go on. Peter fucking shoots himself. Francine goes to fly the helicopter, kind of realizes, like, I don't want to do this on my own. I'm pregnant. I can't, you know, do any. I, I don't want to deal with it. Sticks her head in the helicopter blade and fucking decapitates herself. Mm-hmm. And there's always been debate if they actually shot it or not. I know they made a cast of her head because that exploding head that we talked about earlier during the police raid, that's her head. Like, Savini kind of made it up to be like a black eye for that exploding head. But that's really a head cast of her. That was supposed to be for the helicopter decapitation. And Romero actually thought about it and said, I don't want to make this movie that bleak. Okay. So he gave a little bit of hope, which is where, because you remember like Peter's at the end, he's got the gun to his head and then he changes his mind, shoots the fucking zombie and like runs up the stairs and joins Francine in the helicopter. And they're like, how much gas we got? Not a lot. Well, let's just go as far as we can go. And... There's hope that they might get away. You don't really know. Zombies get them all back. And they seem happy. And then you get that music cue of the gonk. Just kind of plays out like this weird upbeat thing the way they end the movie. And, you know, I kind of talking about it like just basically off emotions and like some facts of this. Like, you know, is the ending that is the ending of the movie actually upbeat? It's like, where the fuck are they going to go? Like I say, you're, you're fucked either way. You're fucked at the mall. You're fucked out there. Which, which place are you less fucked? Exactly. I mean, if Steven hadn't turned into a zombie and led everyone up there, they could have probably holed up there and just kind of waited it out. But mm-hmm. that wasn't the scenario. So, you know, I always had a theory, and I thought it would be weird, because like when you watch the end of Day of the Dead, they have all those helicopters on the beach. You know, I always kind of wonder if, like, the people from Day of the Dead found, like, Peter and Francine on whatever island they managed to get to or whatever. Yes. I always kind of wonder if that helicopter was a homage thing. I don't know if Romero ever addressed it or not, but because mm-hmm. there's also a helicopter in Day of the Dead. Romero liked helicopters. Who doesn't? Yeah, they're fun. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, that's, that's where it is. So that's just us talking about Dawn of the Dead and just kind of our thoughts and stuff, but... We're going to take another break here, but when we return, little we're going to wrap up talking about Dawn of the Dead on the Cinematic Boy podcast. I don't think I'd ever actually get in a helicopter. No, nah, it's kind of scary. <laughs> Boy, GTA, this is Army 212, seven miles northwest, low fuel, heavy weather. Army 212, radar contact, turn right, heading 150. With a fog-bound helicopter hanging on your every word, it doesn't matter whether you're a man or a woman, only that you're good. Slowly. Roger. Overlanding threshold. Be all that you can be. Thanks for your help. Roger. You can do it in the army. The unbearable suspense that keeps you on the edge of an abyss of terror. 
take a cult film odyssey into Cinemadness with Cinematic Void. Based in Los Angeles, Cinematic Void is a film series that specializes in horror and exploitation films. Currently, we are hosting Cinematic Void Up All Night in the Cinemadness Movie, a monthly virtual screening series, as well as the Cinematic Void podcast, where we dive deeper into the world of cult cinema. You can find Cinematic Void on the World Wide Web at cinematicvoid.com, as well as Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And if you like what we do, you can support Cinematic Void by joining our Patreon. Until next time, see you in the void. Welcome back. We've been talking about Dawn of the Dead here on the Cinematic Void podcast, and kind of to wrap up talking about it, we're going to talk a little bit about some other things that doesn't, not more, t- not necessarily has to do with the actual movie itself, but things that went into making the movie, and basically the film's overall legacy. And the first thing I want to talk about is Romero's aesthetic and style for this movie, which was... You know, again, I think the template was the crazies, but like, you know, he did a lot of edit. He was the editor on this movie as well, so he did a lot of montages. Like, yeah, I think like there's a lot of montage cutting in this movie, and you know, there's not a there's a little bit of camera movement. There's a little there's occasionally some zooms and some pans, but a lot of it's really static shots. I don't know if you noticed that on this rewatch, even though you watched the fucking stupid long fan made cut or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. There's some zooms and whatnot, but not not many. No, it it it's basically like I don't want to say like a puzzle, but it's like you know it's definitely fluid to like that whole montage style. And one thing I always found very interesting about this movie, or like Romero talking about it, there's a documentary that Roy Frumpkes, who um, wrote and produced Street Trash, did called Document of the Dead, where they talk about like Romero at a certain point in the like production of Dawn. They were ahead of schedule, so he started improvising stuff. And then he would actually talk to Savini. He's like, come up with another gore gag because we want to punch something up here. Or like, hey, we have a continuity error. Let's figure out how to solve this continuity error. So they started improvising and just adding shit. And I think at one point, our Dario Argento had come out to visit the set just to see how things were going. And he's watching Romero direct and like, okay, if we're going to turn the camera here. Let's start doing this stuff. And like, I think Argento is like, holy shit, I... I've never seen, I can't, you know, I don't even know how to direct a movie like this. This is incredible that you can like just work that fast and then improvise and like turn things around that quick because they shot a lot of stuff. And like, basically it's like, you know, we have, we have room and money to experiment because it's low budget. There's no studio like sitting there like counting money days and all that because it was an indie, you know, regional horror film. And that's one of the things I really love about this movie is just like there's a freedom to it that Romero didn't necessarily have after that because you got to think like he was moving on the bigger things. He had made his really most personal movie, Night Riders, after it. And that does share a lot of Dawn in that, like stylistic wise. But then you get to like Creep Show and things after that where like I think things started to get a little more polished, a little more. I don't want to say mainstream. I'm not trying to say Romero was selling out, but like. He's trying to step up to like going beyond like being a regional filmmaker because like people like him and Toby Hooper who and even Wes Craven who came out of regional filmmaking who are able to transition to say the big leagues, you know. There's a lot of people that made a lot of incredible regional films that just that's where they stayed. Hmm. You know, you gotta think John Waters, regional filmmaker from Baltimore. Sure. Transitioned to the big leagues, which is even more incredible, but like he did it in a different way, you know? Mm-hmm. So I, I mean, one of the things I think is the legacy is just how Romero made this movie. You know, it's very, 
like a lot of his movies up until let's say maybe Creepshow have a bit of a homemade feel to it. And it's also coming out of making industrial films and commercials and stuff. It's a different style filmmaking. I know when we were doing the Fulci episode way back and we did a little bit that I think only ended up on Patreon where we're comparing Romero to Fulci and like, you know, and this wasn't a knock on Romero, just like, you know, Fulci's more of a classic director, even though he doesn't get that credit where Romero's more of like a DIY, you know, just kind of making up as he's going because like that's just different schools, you know. But I think, you know, for this movie, this worked perfect. Like this, you know, Martin's my favorite Romero movie, but I think deep down, for me, this is probably his best movie. Yeah. The other thing we got to talk about is the scores to this movie. Obviously, there's the Goblin score, you know, which I remember like picking up this soundtrack in like the early 2000s on a trip to New York because like those were when those reissues were kind of coming out on vinyl, which is kind of funny now because you have all kinds of baller reissues of that. But, like, before that, early 2000s, like, you're paying 20 bucks for an import record. And, like, think of early 2000s paying 20 bucks for a record, like a new record. Yeah. That was insane. Now it'd kill to pay fucking 20 bucks for a record because, like, now they're, like, what, $35 new or some shit? Yep. Insanity. But that Goblin score, and basically that was more for Argento's you know, cut of the movie, and, like, obviously Romero could use it. And I don't think Romero was too keen on everything in there. Like, he wasn't big on the score, the Goblin score, which is why he used, I think, the cues he liked where he thought it was appropriate, and then he used a lot of library cues, and that's where you get the stuff like the gawk, the dun-dun-dun. And there's, there's one cue that I used to think was a Goblin cue until I got the, you know, unreleased, like, library cue soundtrack of Dawn of the Dead. It's called, like, Sunrise. It's kind of like a funky, like, 70s, like, prog song. It's, you know, if I didn't know better, I would think it was a Goblin song until I actually heard it. I mean, he picked some really good stuff. And then there's obviously, like, kind of canned, cheesy stuff that you will can hear in other things. Like, there's a couple cues that I think were end up also being in Monty Python and the Holy Grail at different points. Oh, wow. Because it's just canned library music that they bought to use. And I think both of those, because, like, the gonk, I don't know, what's, which thing do you think is more synonymous with Dawn of Dead music-wise? Is it the gonk or is it the goblin score? I mean, I I actually think of the goblin score like when I when I think of goblin, I associate it more with Dawn of the Dead than I do even like Suspiria and that stuff. Like, I only, and I think it's only because I heard it first. Mm-hmm. But, but as soon as it kicks in in this movie, it's just, that's the you know, even though Romero didn't like it, I mean, that's the fucking vibe, man. Yeah. Like, it really, it, it does. Like, the goblin in this movie just fits so fucking well. It's just, it, I don't know, maybe it's just because I've seen it so many times. But it's, but goddamn, it's just, that's exactly what I need. Yeah, and I, I agree. I think the goblin cues, especially the way Romero uses them, work really well. Counterpoint to the Argento cut, where it's fucking wall. Like, basically, he takes, like, the, I don't want to say, like, Suspiria... I think it's more like it's closer to how he like did his Suspiria score than Dawn of the Dead and how he like wall the wall puts the music. I think it just kind of overkills and kind of like lessens the impact where like mm-hmm. the way Romero drops in the cues, I think it's really appropriate. And then you get some library cues in between just to kind of mix it up. But I, I think both are equally important. I think the Goblin score is like an all timer Goblin score. Like, and this is definitely the first Goblin score I heard. You know what I mean? Yeah. Because, like, I definitely saw Dawn of the Dead before I saw Suspiria or Deep Red. Right. So it's always been kind of, like, a favorite, you know? 
And the next thing I want to talk about, even though we touched upon about it a little bit here as we were talking about the movie, is Tom Savini's effects. Like, the thing people don't realize, like, this was a fucking game changer. Like, everyone after this movie had to step up. Like, people were put on notice because you had Dick Smith, you know, Joe Blasco, who did some stuff for Cronenberg, who now makes, he just makes makeup, like, you know, just regular makeup, doing effects. Like, Savini, and then you had the Italian people like Carlo Rambaldi and, like, things like that. And, like, um, a bunch of the Italian stuff, they were doing stuff. But, like, Savini changed it to a point where, like, you couldn't just do a little bloodletting or a throat slit or anything like that. You had to be fucking crazy creative. We're fucking exploding heads now. Yeah, we're, we're fucking blowing up heads. We have zombies taking big chunks out of people. Mm-hmm. You're ripping open people's stomach and pulling out guts and shit. Like, when you watch that, like, the end of um, Dawn of the Dead when the zombies are eating the bikers in the mall, it's fucking harrowing stuff. And I know at night there's a little bit of it, but, like, this is, like, people in pain screaming in fear getting eaten alive. And basically their last memory before they turn to a zombie is getting fucking eaten. And it's really effective. It's really dark. And obviously there's fun stuff too. There's like the screwdriver in the ear of the one zombie. And like, you know, there's stuff like that. And lots of, there's decapitation. There's that classic machete to that one zombie's face, which is really well done. But just, you know, I think overall it's like, I feel like Tom doesn't get the credit that he should. And I think part of that goes into Dawn's overall legacy, which is like, I think this is, this was a game changer and like the fact that like even the Argento cut as it played zombie in Italy, you get the cash in of zombie two directed by Lucio Fulci and it kicked off that whole zombie Italian zombie run. Mm-hmm. Like if there wasn't Dawn of the Dead zombie, you wouldn't have Fulci zombie. You wouldn't have the beyond house by the cemetery. It's like, you know, like none of that shit would have been around it, mm-hmm. And you had other zombie movies and even look at it today. You would have no fucking walking dead. You would have no, like, countless whatever shit zombie movies that people make. You wouldn't have the Dawn of the Dead remake, obviously. But, like, the movie is very important, which is kind of a shame that, like, since the DVD era, it's been kind of in limbo. I know Second Sight put it out on Blu-ray and, like, you know, 4K Ultra HD over in the UK, but for a US release, there hasn't been one since the Anchor Bay one. And I don't want to get into the reasons why. You can research and see that for yourself. But I think it's a shame that this movie's not more widely available. And that, like, you can just go on YouTube and watch some fan fucking edit of it. As opposed to seeing the more legit cuts. You know what I mean? I think the legit cuts are still on YouTube, too. Oh, I know what you mean. Yeah. Mr. I'm watching two hours and 40 minutes of something someone fucking put together in their editing system. But, you know, I, I think, like, its lack of availability now kind of hurts Dawn's legacy because, like, you know, Night of Living Dead's been remastered, put out by Criterion, so it's more on the radar. You know, Arrow put out, like, the in-between Night and Dawn movies, like The Crazies and, like, Season of the Witch and There's Always Vanilla, but, like, Martin and Dawn are just stuck in limbo right now. And, like, I really hope a deal gets struck at some point that someone puts them out here. You know, Second Sight is cool. I'm not disrespecting it. But, like, the average horror movie goer isn't also a Blu-ray collector who's or buying imports and shit like that. I mean, that's the one thing that scares me about Dawn's Legacy is just the lack of availability. And I really hope that changes. And that's, you know, 
Another reason, like, I know we're only screening in L.A., but that's another reason why I think it's important to be able to screen Dawn theatrically. Like, more frequently. Because, like, it's one the, it's really one of the greatest horror movies ever made. It's like, you know, you can debate what's the best movie of the 70s, and it's like, you know, I love Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I love, you know, Deep Red, and I love all that stuff. You know, but, like, for a movie that was very important for getting me and building my basis and backbone to get in the cult cinema, Dawn might be the most important. I'm not saying it's best or it's my favorite, but like to me, it's the most important. So, you know, if you listen to this podcast, like seek it out, see it any way you can. And when there is a legit us, like nice Blu-ray edition, pick it up. And if you get a chance to see it in a theater, see it with a theater audience, because it absolutely kills it's sort of like one of those movies that will work anywhere you watch it. It works watching at home, but like seeing it with an audience, with a crowd that's like really into it or hasn't seen it or just discovering it, it's great. It's like any time I've ever seen Jaws with a crowd. And you always have a few people who have never fucking seen the movie. It's just, it's eye-opening. And like watching with a crowd that hasn't really seen it or watching with a crowd that is very familiar with it, it's a great experience. So is that at the Arrow on the November 26th? It is at the Arrow on November 26th. So if you're in Los Angeles or the Santa Monica area, tickets should be on sale. Well, they will be on sale while this podcast is out. I don't know where the ticket sales will be when this comes out. It could be sold out or there could be tickets left. But if there are tickets left, don't sit on the fence. Get them. See Dawn of the Dead with a crowd. It's really like one of the best moving going experiences you can do. And since it's such a rarity now to be able to see it, come out and cherish it. And hopefully like if we keep screening it, scenario will change. That would be, there would be more access and more people will be able to screen it too. That's why I think it's important. So we're going to take one last break on the cinematic void podcast, but when we return, it's going to be read, watch and listen. George Romero, the master of horror is about to bring you face to face with a shocking future. If you've seen night of the living dead, you've already had the appetizer. Now get ready for the main course. Dawn of the dead, a gruesome reminder that we are what we eat. Dawn of the Dead contains scenes of violence that may be considered shocking. No one under 17 will be admitted from United Film Distributing Company. Welcome back. It's now time for... On the Cinematic Void Podcast, where we talk about all the things we've been reading, watching, and or listening to. Nick, it's been a little while since we recorded a podcast. What have you been reading, watching, and or listening to since then? You know, Jim... I like to consider myself an avid reader. <laughs> However, and, and I, and I, I bet you could probably say the same thing, but you know, when we started doing the read, read, watch, listen thing, I definitely kind of hoped that it would push me towards reading more. And I, I'm, I bet you could say the same. Oh yeah. And I, every fucking time we sit down and do this, we're like, well, I haven't really been reading anything. And so I haven't really been reading anything. Um, so I need everything to get on that, I guess. Yeah. Um, I, I I say this every podcast, and I was like, I the, the reason why it's in here because like it was the it was for me and probably for you to like we I want to read more. Yeah, step it up. I I you know for like the last five of these, I don't think I had to read this one. I actually do, but we'll save it for mine. So. All right. So no reading, but uh, let's see. Watch. Uh, I just watched. Like I say, I watched Hereditary on Halloween. I went and saw Cache at the Los Feliz 3. That's the uh, Michel Haneke film. Mm-hmm. 
um, a, a part of the uh, Voyeur series. Uh, one of my favorites. One of my favorites of his. I also just watched because I had access to a all-region Blu-ray player. Uh, I just watched the straight cut of Irreversible. I've, I've, ha- I've had the uh, indicator uh, version of Irreversible that came out last year. I, I ordered it like right away when they announced it, uh, knowing full well that I didn't have a full region player. But uh, it was just so sick that it was coming out. I got super excited. It comes with a great book. And uh, like I say, it comes with the new 2020 cut of Irreversible, which is it plays straight instead of backwards. So I just watched that. And Irreversible is just one of my favorite films of all time. I mean, it's a five-star film for me for for many reasons. Um, but... Uh, to see it, you know, in the to see it in chronological order as or as he calls it clockwise, um, it does it just doesn't really work for me. You know what I mean? It doesn't it just doesn't hit the same beats. And it's it was interesting to see, and it's an interesting part of you know film history. But uh, you know, did you don't have to love it? You know, there's a reason why it's backwards. There's a reason why I wanted to do that do it that way in the first place, and it definitely plays better for that reason um because of the 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 way you know the way in which the events happen well because like i'm i haven't seen it but i'm assuming like if it plays in clockwise or chronological order it becomes a standard rape revenge right whereas the other way it -hmm. becomes something even more devastating because it's 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 you know in the way in the theatrical version it's devastating and then and then ends on a happy note but that happy note, you know, with the with the knowledge that you have of what's going to happen to them, is devastating, and that and that's you know that's ultimately why it's brilliant. But yeah, so this just doesn't, you know. Again, I, I'm so glad I got to see it. This is it's this set is so fucking cool. If you do have a all region player, although I I think I heard recently that Indicator is going to start doing U.S. releases, so that'll probably come out at some point. Maybe depends if they have a U.S. license for it. I don't actually uh, know who has the license. It's for Canal, it. I think. Oh, Studio Canal. They might be able to. Ah, we'll see. Um, and then, lastly, I just watched uh, "White Dog" by Samuel Fuller. An insane, an insane uh, racist dog movie. If you're not aware of what it is, um, it's fucking great. the The dog is a great actor. I mean, I really, I fully believe that he was racist. <laughs> I mean, it's not—it's not the point of the movie. The, 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 it's basically trying to deprogram that dog. Sure, sure. I mean, the point—you know—it's probably speaking on, you know, the, I mean, the film's actually speaking about racism, not racist dogs. And you know what I mean? Like, it's just that's the plot device. But I don't know, it's great. It's—it's it's definitely worth a watch if you can find it. Um, it's not an easy find. It was on—I—I uh, I rented it from Cinephile over in Santa Monica. It's a Criterion DVD from back in the day. They never upgraded the blue. They never did, and uh, I think there is like a international release or something that you can get if you're for for all you, you know, Region B listeners out there. Are you racist dog aficionados? <laughs> <laughs> if you love a if you love a good, uh, just a great acting dog, you know, just I I don't know. I mean, you know the history about this movie. Like it was made and it got shelved yeah. for many years. So like. And because it was just misunderstood, like, you know, the whole point is like, you know, this guy gets this dog that was like basically trained by racists to hate black people and like basically trying to get the dog to be, you know, mm-hmm. get 
give it some dignity and get it back to where it is. It's a really interesting movie if you've never seen it. Like, I'm kind of surprised they haven't. I have a feeling eventually Criterion will put out Blu-ray or something like that. It's it's very much a product of its time, and I don't even mean uh, subject matter wise. I actually more mean in the way that it, the way that it flows as a film, the way that the pacing is and everything like that. It's much. I mean, I guess it it actually came out in '82, but it it definitely feels like a kind of a '70s, you know, slow burn. It's a it's a it's a great fucking movie, man. Um, so then listen, I've been listening to the new quicksand record that came out this year. I skimmed it when it first came out. I'm like, and I just wasn't in the mood for it. And so recently somebody was like, Hey, have you heard that quicksand? And I put it back on and now it's just like, I've listened to it like three or four times this week. Um, it's great. Uh, and then in that same realm of things, I've been, I went back and listened to some hum and a bunch of the, uh, the more, the recent, uh, Glassjaw records that uh, I think from like 2017 on. So that's kind of the the stuff that I like from Glassjaw. It's a little more quicksand, a little heavier. Uh, and that new snail mail came out. And as much as I love that one song, I haven't I haven't like really sat down and like taken it all in. Um, I think you have, but um, but yeah, I, I plan on I plan to listen to that more. But you know, I I did check it out. And uh, it's fucking great. They they just played on Colbert on Friday. This is actually really cool. I think it's Colbert. I don't know. They played on some fucking. They played on TV the other day. Let's say that. I don't know. I, I saw it. I saw it on YouTube. I don't know. They played on YouTube the other day. I just listened to Atrax Morgue, Black Slaughter, and the reason I did so is because they just did a deep dive on Black Slaughter on the Halloween episode of Noise Extra. Um, and so I guess Noise Extra are kind of making it a tradition to every Halloween uh, do a Atrax Morgue uh, episode. So Atrax Morgue, again, is like a, a noise artist um, who eventually killed himself. All of his stuff is pretty much just about, about death. And it's just, you know, synth-based noise, weird soundscapes. Uh, and this one is uh, more like synth soundscapes and samples of like Ted Bundy talking over it, stuff like that. And not so much like his vocals, uh, like which he's known for. Um, but I highly recommend just like, you know, it's a second tape. I think it came out like 93. Um, it's not like, I think there's probably like 40 physical copies or something. And it's been repressed over the years, but you know, super, super limited noise tape kind of thing. Um, you can find it on YouTube and listen to it. And then, uh, you know, if you, if you want to, you want to get really spooky, you know, go listen to that. Uh, and listen to the uh, Noise Extra episode about it after. Um, so, yeah. All right. How about you, man? What you been reading, watching, and listening to? Reading? This is going to be the first time in a while. I got the new issue of Hellboards, issue six. I wouldn't say it's really reading. I've been skimming. So it should be like skimming, watch, listen. But I do plan on sitting down and reading it. I've, it's been busy since October. I mean, I don't have an excuse for any other times. I missed, but I do have an excuse excuses but whatever god damn it next time we do this when we do the non-traditional christmas episode that's coming up next month i will have a real read in there fucking god damn it um watch wise i just got the um re- recently um kino put out the uh, rest- kino recently restored and put out the cold jack the night stalker tv series with darren mcgavin so i've been going through those really nice transfers it's kind of, you know, you know about Cold Jack the Night Stalkers, two TV movies in a series. It's like proto X-Files. Okay. Really cool stuff. 
I also watched um, Jack Shoulders Alone in the Dark, which Shout Factory just put out on Blu-ray maybe a couple months back, or maybe a month back. I can't remember when the fucking thing came out, but I watched it. stars Martin Landau, Donald Pleasance, Jack Palance. Um, Jack Shoulder also directed um, The Hidden as well as Nightmare on Elm Street 2. This was a new line, kind of like slasher movie. It's kind of weird. You know, it's got a very great unhinged Donald Pleasance performance in this one. Which is kind of funny because I think the last time we did an episode, you were talking about Wake and Fright and his unhinged performance in that movie. Mm-hmm. Um, other things I've been watching, a lot of YouTube videos. Um, DJ Premier, you know, world famous, world famous producer, DJ, you know, gang star, produce stuff for Nas, that kind of stuff. He's got a thing, he's got a show on YouTube called So What's Up, where he basically talks about like how he made certain famous songs and pulls out the fucking, you know, the computer floppy disk that he has all the samples on because that's how you used to have to, you had to take your samples put them on floppy floppy disk and then take them to the studio and cut them into the song and stuff and i've been checking out some of them. he did one on um j rooted damager come clean where he talks about how he built like basically like the song from these samples and like you know keep it stripped down he even does one for limp biscuit that one limp biscuit song he'll produce with method man i forget what the fuck it's called oh dude i forgot to add in my listen i i fucking listened to the new limp biscuit record and how was that it's got some fucking tracks on it <laughs> <laughs> i knew you were gonna say but it, like it has a song on it that sounds like fucking like there's one song that straight up is just like we just decided to sound like cypress hill <laughs> like i mean it's a cypress hill ripoff song like wow. for no reason and then there's like other songs that are like oh this is like a like there's a song in there that's like the verse sounds like standable pilots and then the chorus sounds like it has like a, like a little nirvana ripoff i don't know man sorry to hijack here nah more, but, pa- but, more power to you but but for whatever reason i i listen to the new limpiscuit so well i i i made the mistake of mentioning that particular dj premiere thing <laughs> oh that's yeah okay i mean that's that's how we like got why, in the, why how why did i get here how do we get here it was that <laughs> okay but like you know he talks about like a lot of things he's produced and like it's just really interesting because he just breaks down and he also shouts out his engineers and like you know who hooked him up and like that kind of stuff it's, it's really cool i don't know if you checked them out but like the other thing I watched, um, NPR has been doing a series. I forget what it's fucking called. And I forgot to write it down. But, like, it's basically producers and rappers working together. They're the One episode was Kenny Beats and Rico Nasty talking about their relationship. The latest one was um, Alchemist and Freddie Gibbs talking about Alfredo and how it came about. And, like, it was mostly focused on that song, Skinny Shug, and, like, what went into it. And, like, you know, stripped down beats and stuff. Like, you know, different philosophies. Like, you know, normally we do this but we decided since we're doing this together, we wanted the you know, it's really cool, like insider, like production things. And the other thing I watched recently was, um, homie, Derek Millen, who was on the Salem episode. He just dropped his, um, Salem, Salem Halloween vlog on 2020 or 2021, I should say. And like, you know, he actually messaged me. He's like, Hey man, I don't know if I can put this out because like every like five minutes I was getting stopped by someone like who wanted to buy me a beer in Salem. And I was like, that's not a bad problem. So, it's actually a really cool video, and it's like, the way it kind of feels is like, you know, last year, Halloween, pandemic, sale, not the same. This one kind of felt like a celebration. So it's a really cool video. So if you haven't been checking out his vlogs, like, he's got some coming up at the Rhode Island Comic Con that he was just at, and he ran into Friends of the Void, Keith Coogan there, you know, from... Don't tell mom the babysitter's dead and ventures babysitting. Mm-hmm. He's like, Oh, I've known if you like had met you knew Keith before or something like that. It's like, well, I, I know Keith 
I don't know how well he'll remember me kind of thing, but like, you know, it was kind of cool he ran to it. And speaking of vlogs, I forgot to mention this earlier, there is a Cinematic Void vlog, and the first, I guess, episode or whatever you want to call it dropped. It was uh, me just going around L.A. filming a bunch of like Halloween decorations I like. Vlog number two is going to be out. It should be a recap of um, the Halloween 3 screening as well as the Severn show, and also kind of like double-checking, see who in November still has the balls to leave their Halloween decorations up. Maybe a little package thing. And finally, listen. I've been listening to that Rome Street's Ransom Coupe de Gras record. Uh, Love the first song. Took me a while to warm up to the rest of the tracks. I like it quite a bit. Did listen to Snail Mail Valentine all the way through. I think that first song... This is weird I'm saying this back to back. I think the first song is so good that the rest of the album is having a hard time living up to it. I think it's good, but I need to give it more listens. Like, one pass-through is not going to really do it justice. Other things I've been listening to, I've been listening to various Electric Wizard tracks. I think it's because it was kind of gloomy and kind of fall vibes. And, like, you know, you can listen to black metal, you can listen to Misfits. Sometimes you want to listen to fucking some stoner rock doom metal shit. And I just put on, like, basically all the albums and just let it shuffle. And good shit. It's, like, one of those bands I really love and then haven't listened to it a bit and just kind of can reacquaint it. The other things I've listened to is two kind of, I guess, like grindcore, hardcore, power violence bands, whatever you want to call that. Uh, I listened to discographies of Monster X and Black Army Jacket. I think it's because when you said you went to the Horathon at the Arrow, you met Devin, who's friends with her friend of the Void, Matt Average. Devin was in Monster X, mm. as well as a ton of other bands. And it's just like, man, I love Monster X. I'm going to put that shit on. And then, like, Black Army Jacket, because I kind of associate the two. Not that the bands were related or anything. They're just both New York kind of power violence, hardcore bands kind of thing. They both did a split with Spaz. They both did a split with Spaz. I didn't listen to Spaz, though, but I don't know. Those were the two discographies I decided to throw on. But that wraps up this episode of the Cinematic Void podcast. Again, I'm going to give one last plug. Dawn of the Dead, Arrow Theater, Friday, November 26th. Get your tickets unless they're sold out. Then get in that standby line. Don't miss seeing Dawn of the Dead in the theater. Coming up next month on the Cinematic Void podcast, we're going to be doing a... It's going to be a return of a non-traditional Christmas. We did this last year where we picked a bunch of movies that aren't really thought of as Christmas movies, but actually are sometimes in very tedious ways or very flimsy ways. So we got a new set we're going to talk about. And then we're going to be doing a closing the year with a recap on basically our favorite Blu-ray and record releases of 2021. We did that last year. A lot of people seemed into it. So fuck it. We're going to do it again. And then that all leads into January with the return of January Giallo. Um, speaking of Black Friday and that Dawn of Dead screening, over on the Void Big Cartel on Black Friday, January Giallo 2022 shirts designed by Eagle Barber. Shout out to the homie Eagle are going to be up for pre-order. Got a new printer on these. They'll actually be available the second week of December. So there's not much of a window on this pre-order. Basically, going to get them. It's going to be out the door. Not doing what I did for the Halloween shirts and the past Chili Dog shirts. So excited for that. Um, really excited to work with this new printer. It's called Deluxe Printing. Eagle actually recommended them to me. So they do all his Sunburner company stuff. So nice. And that's some good shit. But anyway, that's going to wrap it up. Really excited. Also, as we talk Jaguar Giallo, like got some big plans for that for 2022. Might talk about a little bit of that on the Christmas episode. Maybe, maybe not. You have to listen to find out. 
Until next time, see, see you in the, the void. void. We'll be off the air by midnight anyway. The emergency networks are taking over. Our responsibility is finished.